0: Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio, a podcast that talks with architects to learn how they use Apple products in the practice of architecture, with your host, Neil Pan. Support for Inside the Apple Studio comes from Monograph. Monograph is the cloud-based practice operations solution built for architects by architects. Learn how Monograph can help you be more productive at monograph.com. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio. In this episode, I'm excited to have an architect and entrepreneur whose career started during the Great Recession and has taken a very different path than one of a traditional architect. I'm pleased to welcome architect Zach Safflin to the show. Welcome, Zach. Hi.
1: It's good to be here, Neil.
0: Great. Thank you for joining me. Let's start off by hearing what inspired you to become an architect in the first place.
1: Oh, so uh, I, I knew I wanted to be an architect Ever since, ever since high school, and I think um, CAD technology is really what what got me interested in it from the beginning. So, in high school, I remember taking a, a CAD class. I was working in tools like uh, AutoCAD and Inventor and others, and I just I just remember really being not being able to get enough of putting together things digitally <laughs> on the computer. It was it was pretty empowering. Um, it felt like so I, I really took to that. I gotta credit one one of my high school uh, teachers who really taught me everything that I know about CAD. So I remember ever ever since early on in high school, I remember knowing, you know, what I want to do is put buildings together.
0: Was that a class that you saw on the schedule and decided to take it? Or was it part of a another class that also did some CAD work?
1: You know, so I I remember it was actually a a class that followed a hand drafting class so I, t- I took hand drafting and i i liked it but it was just it was just something that i that i did and then um kind of a, a class that built on that was then the, the cad class and so i took that and that that r- right away kind of blew me away like okay this is this is this is pretty cool i'm pretty passionate about this so
0: what about drawing in cad got you excited
1: I think, I think the biggest thing was just the, like the possibilities uh, that, were, that were there. I was never, I was never good, especially even in getting into uh, college in my architecture degree, I was never good at sketching or hand drawing or anything else like that. But um, so I found that I found the computer and CAD programs and modeling programs really empowering that I could, I had, might have something in my mind and I could I could then get it out Yeah. in that way. So I remember, I remember like Building a really detailed, like bike pedal sunmarine and an inventor, and hooking up all the pieces together, you know, digitally and making it actually work or turn. Um, there's there's something about that, that just was empowering.
0: Sure. So after high school, you went on to attend the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Why did you choose to pursue your undergraduate degree in architecture there?
1: You know, so um, I grew up uh, in a small town um, west of Lincoln. In, uh, in Seward. And so I uh, had always, like I said, in, in early on in high school, I knew I wanted to go into architecture. I don't know if I really knew what that meant, um, though. Uh, architecture to me was, was, you know, designing houses and, you know, things like that. Um, so I don't, I don't think I really knew what um, that meant uh, exactly. So I ended up like, I think pursuing a uh, associate's degree at a, at a technical college in in the area and as i was kind of going through my gen eds and uh, things like that i realized you know i think i think i want to focus more on um, commercial architecture and what that looks like so i ended up applying at the university of nebraska which was was relatively close again not really knowing what i was getting myself into and yeah so so i didn't really i I did not evaluate very many colleges when (laughs) when i was Going through that decision, I I just kind of went with went with that one because I was I was in the area.
0: Uh, That makes a lot of sense, actually, to stay close to home. It cuts down on the cost, I assume.
1: Yes, yeah, and I was actually married at that time as well, so I I got married got married fairly young. So that was a that was a key factor in our uh, decision as well for me to pursue it there.
0: Now you stayed another two years after receiving your undergraduate degree and received a master's from the same school. Did you consider attending a different school? And what about the master's program at the University of Nebraska Lincoln appealed to you?
1: No, I, I did. I did consider attending uh, other master's programs. I think uh, a lot of my decision was kind of weighted on on the connections and obviously the family that I had in the area. Um, that, that's probably one of my bigger regrets that I didn't like evaluate or um, try other options more um, at that time in my life. But ultimately, the the um, master's program at the University of Nebraska was awesome. I, I really enjoyed my experience there and thought it was a really robust program.
0: What did you do for your master's thesis
1: so my my thesis focused on uh, data driven architecture so I spent really that whole year focused on how we can make more uh, data driven decisions in in our design in our design system so like the the result of it was really focused on how can we essentially take a point uh, a location um, uh, a locational point somewhere in the world and based on the context and the users of that particular building kind of programmatically shape that building you know through data like adjacencies to uh, existing services or um, stores things like that um, what the what the like demographics of the area are and things like that so we ended up building like a a tool that would kind of automatically generate this using uh, evolutionary problem-solving algorithms that that kind of would would essentially understand the um, context and the users and then generate um, kind of these schematic programmatic blocks uh, of information. So it it was really kind of interesting. I kind of, when I started... I don't. I don't think I really knew where it was going to end up, but it it ended up being a really um, interesting experience that kind of shaped, I think, the the start and um, you know really the rest of my career in architecture because that really got me interested in the uh, design technology side of uh, practice.
0: What inspired you to pursue that specific thesis?
1: In in undergrad, especially, I had a couple professors that really challenged me to dive into uh, visual scripting um, tools like Grasshopper and Dynamo. And I, I did, and I became really passionate about what that allowed, what that unlocked kind of on the design side of a, of a project. Similar to kind of like my experience in, in high school, I think I, there, there's something really empowering about being able to create your own tools and generate really complex geometry with relatively little effort. So I, I think... I realized during my undergraduate that I was was really passionate about visual, visual scripting and using those types of tools to create and generate architecture. So I knew that's really what I wanted to focus on for my for my thesis.
0: So what sort of tools did you build or how what sort of software did you use to build and anal- and do this analytics, if you will, for your thesis?
1: So I, it kind of started with it kind of started with uh, Grasshopper. I don't know if you're familiar with Grasshopper, but it's a plug-in to Rhino, which is a modeling program. And so, I I knew that I wanted to do something with with parametric modeling tools. And so that that's kind of where I started. But where my thesis kind of took me is into into areas where there weren't there weren't kind of pre-built tools or components that you could utilize in um, parametric design tools. So I ended up having to build my own tools and, and plugins and things like that. So it kind of took me down the road of, of programming fairly quickly. And I ended up, you know, building ways that I could communicate with the Google maps API to get restaurant locations or grocery store locations, all of that stuff to kind of pull that location, location-based data to inform um, the model itself. So there are a lot of those types of things where I don't think at the beginning of my thesis, I would have known that I would have gone down that track, but I was kind of, forced to by, by, by just the, where my, the direction my thesis was headed. So
0: what programming language were you using to do that?
1: So I I started using Python, which is a pretty, pretty good entry-level programming language uh, for, for uh, especially like in, in architecture, it's, it's a, it's a good starting point um, for programming. So I use a lot of Python, but I ended up toward the end of my thesis, really one of the one of the results was of the of the thesis was was this residential tower that essentially users would be able to use in, an app on their phone and essentially select preferences uh, about their particular unit. Um, it's just a, a way to kind of get information, and so they would submit answers to questions like, you know, what's your preference on height? What's your preference on preference on views outward? You know, what direction do you want to face? um and then they could actually start to lay out kind of modules for what their unit need to look like like kitchen and um bedrooms and living areas and stuff like that and so w- once those were submitted the the whole point was that the the program that that i built would take all that information and it would start to negotiate all of those priorities and mix them together into one kind of tower and so in order to do that i had to i had to learn a myriad of different tools so i ended up um using JavaScript and HTML to build a, a web application that would allow users to submit and design um, this data. I, like I said, I use Python for a lot of the backend stuff that was actually doing the analysis and like putting it all together. Um, and then ultimately use like Grasshopper and Rhino and a myriad of other tools to actually like, visualize it in general. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty cool experience.
0: So while you were doing all of this and pursuing your master's, you actually worked at the same time at BVH Architecture. How did you approach working and going to school at the same time during your master's? For,
1: for me, like I think I started at the beginning of my fourth year of uh, architecture school, uh, working at uh, BVH Architecture. And all throughout the rest, of, the rest of my education, I worked part-time. I think I have averaged around 20 to 25 hours a week. And for me, that was actually really valuable um, because I, I think I mean I can only speak to my experience, but one thing that's really lacking in academia is really the professional side and the professional experience of the industry. And so obviously students get that when they come out of school and move and move into a practice. But for me, it was it was really interesting to kind of experience those things simultaneously. Um, so I'd I'd be I'd be at work for um, 20 to 25 hours a week, worrying about Things like RFIs and different like technical problems that come up on a on a on a project. And then obviously the other end of that in school worried about the more academic side of design. So for me it was it was actually really it worked out really well and gave me kind of a well-rounded experience, I think.
0: Did you ever feel that because you are working, that some of your projects that you are working on it- might not have been exactly like this for you since you were working on especially during your thesis on such a data driven sort of thesis but did you ever think that the reality of can i build something limit your design abilities while you were in college
1: <laughs> that's a good that's a good question i think that was definitely a factor for me in in school but in, in per- particular with my with my thesis i kind of enjoyed the you know since i was also working at a firm, I kind of enjoyed the the freedom of academia. That that you know, not not that not that everything that you um, design was was unfeasible uh, to build, but li- that 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 limitation was nice to to not have to worry about. I guess, and especially like I mean, I think especially in, w- within a thesis, like you're you're looking at kind of a larger uh, a larger problem or idea than just like how I can practically um, execute or build on this particular building. Mine in particular wasn't really about a single building or location. It was really about the idea behind how we arrive at that. So yeah, for me, I think I I liked the freedom that academia provided me.
0: (laughs) So as someone who has received their license to practice architecture in 2016, what was that process like and how did you prepare or how did you balance work and taking exams at the same time?
1: you know i i uh, I procrastinated quite a bit on on taking the taking the exams, which I think is fairly typical, <laughs> but I remember deciding one January, well in probably 2015 that you know what? I just need to knock this out and get it done and so um, actually I actually had a group of two other guys that were in my office um, that I were pretty good, I was pretty good friends with that were similar age, unlicensed. Um, still need to take their exams. We kind of all started at the same point, so having that community around it and accountability made it a little bit easier. We we kind of worked together to take our exams. I think we all failed at least one uh, throughout the process, but I think within a year we all three finished uh, relatively close together. So it was it was a good experience just to have other people to go through that
0: with. Did you study as a group? No,
1: not not really. We we all had kind of different. Study methods, I think, were like I guess ways that we retained the information. I remember, like, for my first test, putting in way more time than uh, I would have needed to. Um, and by the by, the last couple, I realized, you know, if I spend, if I spent the time, and basically, if I, I, what I ended up doing with my last couple is I would schedule the exam a week out, and then spend two hours a night, essentially reading as many pages as I could of the study guides. And then I would end up taking the test with wherever I left off. And that, that strategy actually worked out fairly well for me. I didn't put a whole lot more into studying. We didn't, we didn't, everyone kind of did it differently.
0: Yeah. What sort of gap between exams did you give yourself?
1: (laughs) I think that varied quite a bit. So actually I'll correct this, that my first exam, my first exam I failed that I remember. And that was the schematic design Test. And the schematic design test is it's different now, but back then you you had to actually use their CAD software um, to lay out a uh, a building, essentially, based on the programming requirements and everything else like that. And I remember um I remember doing that and you know, studying a ton for it. It went it went really well. Um, but I remember in the in the test, in the last three minutes, I realized. Oh shoot, I think I have a minor error here because I'm not meeting this program requirement. And so I had about three minutes left. And I was like, okay, I think I can fix this. And I started moving stuff around uh, in the in the cab program. And time was ticking down. And <laughs> I got down to, I think I got down to 20 seconds. And I was like, dang it, I I'm not gonna be able to put this, you know, finish, finish this. I'm just gonna undo everything I did really quick and I tried doing it. And at the end of it, the very end of it, the clock ticked out. And I realized I looked at the screenshot and I had a giant wall straight down the middle of one of my corridors, which basically meant that I had two giant dead end corridors. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I, I knew, so I knew right at that minute I failed it. And so, uh, after that test, I remember being pretty demoralized and I don't think I took another one for (laughs) a good month or two, but then after that, um, my second exam, I, I studied uh, pretty hard for. I passed that one. And then I tried to knock one out basically every month. Okay. Essentially. So yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting process.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds like you had a good methodology about, uh, of an approach. I'm curious, what materials did you use to study with?
1: Oh, I think it was Kaplan. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um, they had, they had a lot of the, the, yeah, the big, the, basically a big book for for uh, each one. So yeah, I think that's what I
0: used. Were those materials supplied by your employer?
1: They were. Yeah. They actually had all that study material. BVH architecture actually reimbursed me for every, pass, or every test that I passed. So most of it was covered by the organization as well. So that was good.
0: Nice. So let's talk a little bit about BVH architecture. What sort of projects were you working on during your time there? So ever
1: since, even as an intern, I pretty early found kind of my niche in the design technology side of of projects. And I think the, the first one I can kind of think of is, well, first of all, BVH works on a myriad of different project types. So they do everything from K through twelve to higher ed, civic projects, uh, a lot of uh, like preservation projects, adaptive reuse, all kinds of all kinds of different project types. So. Where I kind of found my niche, even even as an intern, was was building out solutions to problems on specific projects. So one of my first projects that I worked on was the uh, Haymarket Arena in in Lincoln. It was a it was a big uh, arena, basically that we were working on with several other firms. And one of the one of the problems was the the top of this. They called it the drum of this building. It was probably about a third of the facade of the building, essentially, was kind of a doubly curved surface. And we didn't have a great way to create that in the tools that we were using, Uh, you know, just Revit, uh, basically, we didn't have a great way to create that geometry. And so as an intern, I I kind of, I was tasked with how could we make this easier to generate? Because essentially, we were, we were uh, creating iterations of this time and time again, I think we went through like 80 plus iterations of what this needed to look like. And so I ended up building a grasshopper script that essentially took the four ellipses that were provided to us and then generated all of the panels, the interior wall, the studs, the windows, those types of things. So that essentially we could make changes to that geometry um, and the, the parameters of that geometry, and then automatically regenerate the geometry. So. I think that was kind of my first project where I think BVH recognized that "Mm, there's a lot of value in these design, uh, these design tools, design technology tools. And so I think I was kind of, well, pigeonholed sounds like a negative term, but like that, that's really where my niche was at. And uh, that's really what I focused on the rest of my career. So I did a lot of that with, we worked on the the gateway arch survey and restoration. And I, I worked on uh, solutions for that, uh, all the way to like small meeting centers that needed solar analysis and thin solutions and I don't know all kinds of different things so
0: really solutions that you were working on during your time in college
1: exactly yes <laughs> exactly right yep
0: now one of the rehab projects that you worked on led to the creation of what is now layer we'll talk a little bit more about that but i wanted to know how did this in-house project begin and talk about how that became Layer and you as its founder and CEO. Yeah,
1: that's a great question. Um, so we were, BVH has been working on the Nebraska State Capitol for, I think, close to like 30 or 40 years. The Nebraska State Capitol goes through basically 10-year increment incremented um, projects where they'll focus on the interior, then the exterior, then the interior, then the exterior. And so BVH has been working on all of those. Yeah. Pretty continuously basically. So, uh, the most recent project to come up was a, uh, the HVAC replacement project where basically it was an interior project where they're going to rip out all of the old HVAC equipment and replace it with new equipment. And so we, we started that, we started that project and this was, this was right around the time. I think it was like 2016, somewhere in there. And we, we hadn't previously had a BIM model of this, of this project. And so we had a couple of member, members of our team used old drawings and went over to the Capitol, took measurements, all of those types of things, and essentially built and assembled a, a really detailed BIM model for the, for this, so that, a Revit model. And so then I, I, I got brought onto that project when uh, we went into really the design phase where we needed to basically collect. All of the information uh, about this, about the existing condition of the building now, and then design the solutions for it later. And so what we, what we had to do is we had to go in to the Capitol and basically do a full condition assessment of the entire building. Now we typically do this with notepads, clipboards, digital cameras, things like that, but. Looking at this project really quickly, we realized like the scale and multiplicity of this project wasn't going to allow us to approach this in the way that we had before. So, uh, and really just because we, there was around 1300 rooms. So gathering interior photos of 1300 rooms and finding what we were looking for, doing this the traditional way wasn't going to work. Um, and we, we kind of knew that going, going into this. This is evident just by the sheer amount of data that we ended up gathering um, at the end of it. After after everything was said and done, we we ended up with like thirty nine thousand photos, interior photos of the building.
0: Wow!
1: Uh, I think we collected around a hundred thousand pieces of unique data about the building as well. Things like you know what's the wall material on the west wall in office twelve hundred, and what's its condition? Is it preservation worthy? All of those types of things we needed to know. Again, with thirteen hundred rooms, it became really daunting really quickly. So, with with my background, I I. Started really thinking about how we could solve this problem, and I realized, you know, we had this really detailed BIM model where we had ge- geometrically a lot of the information was was there. Like we knew what rooms were where, mm-hmm. we knew where walls were located, uh, windows were located, all of those types of things. What we didn't have is a connection to all of this real world data that we had to gather out in the field. So, essentially, I end up end up building a, a prototype that would essentially was a was a Revit add-in that would connect to our model extract uh, the objects that we cared about attaching information to objects like rooms or windows and then make those available on on mobile devices so that we could basically take those mobile devices into the field walk into a room you know office 1200 and snap 15 photos of the room you know looking looking around and then gather all of the data related to that uh, particular room, like what the wall material was or what the floor condition was. All of those different types of things. And so, essentially, as you were gathering the information, all of it inherently had context. It knew where it was located in the building because it was attached to these uh, elements uh, from our from our model. So, it made collection a lot easier. But then, on the other end of that, it made referencing it uh, a lot easier as well, because as part of part of what I ended up building was a dashboard in Revit, where as you navigated around your model, clicking on a room or a door or a window, uh, our our prototype would actually pull up um, automatically all the related information to that. So if you clicked on a room uh, in Revit, you would see all of the photos related to that room, basically eliminating the gap between the real world data that we needed to design and the actual design tools that we were working in.
0: Now, how long did it take you to build this prototype?
1: So, so I have to I have to credit BVH and particularly the the capital project team on this because they were incredibly brave to essentially put their trust in an architect who was not a software developer and who was saying that he could build this thing to collect and manage all of this data, but didn't have a fully working copy of it yet. <laughs> because basically over the next you know, once we, once I kind of introduced that idea over the next couple months, I would say I got to building the the core components of it. So I, the first one was extracting the data from the Revit model and that took um, relatively little time to do um, maybe within, within the week, but then being out in the field and actually collecting the data that took, that took several months to kind of build that out. And I kind of built it in pieces as we, as we needed it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so I remember distinctly you know, being in the office and getting a phone call from one of the people surveying uh, the building, or maybe the project manager Julie, who's over there and can't get something to work. And so I remember, you know, getting in my car, driving over to the Capitol, having an iPad on the back of my my trunk of my car, um, debugging problems and redeploying a new app to it, and all of this stuff. So again, the the team was incredibly brave to embark on that journey, and I think it ultimately it ultimately paid off that so we. we Saved a saved a ton of time,
0: so you had to become a programmer essentially.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was it, again. It was something that that I think I realized like as I was getting more and more into it. It's like, man, this is really empowering. I can build. I can really build anything without without compromise. There's just something about that 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 really um, drew me in, and uh, I realized I was really passionate about it.
0: So take us from that prototype to the creation of layer and where you are today as its CEO.
1: I continued on that, that project for, we probably continued building it and iterating on that uh, for about a, for at least a year. from that point, never really thinking that it would go anywhere than just other than just for this particular project. But as we moved out of the collection phase of the project and into the um, design design phase, of the project we we ended up inviting all of the team members you know mechanical electrical um uh, engineers structural engineers to this to uh the the prototype and allowing them to view this data alongside their models i mean we had a we had a team of i think 30 people that were all using and referencing this information without having to go back over to the site and look for this data about the existing building and so at that point we really we realized you know I, I think we're solving a much bigger problem than what than just on the capital mm-hmm. uh, and it was at that point that i started having conversations with leadership at BVH about you know what i think we should i think we should take this and try to
0: bring this to market and what was their reception to that i mean we know the answer but what was their initial reception
1: i th- i think that they were they were surprisingly um, open to it. They, they saw, they saw the response uh, from the project team and the applications. And I think, I mean, one of the biggest benefits that we have is where we started is we have this great origin story uh, of the capital, where like, this was literally born out of a, a problem that just about anybody can relate with who's worked on a, who's worked on a design project. So the question wasn't at least from their mind and even, and even mine, the question wasn't whether it was going to be valuable in the market. I think the question, biggest question that we had to answer is where are we going to take this and what we're going to focus on? You know, is this just going to be a tool for condition assessments and facility audits or uh, does it have bigger application? And so we had to, we had to really pick a point on the, on the spectrum of where we wanted to go. And we chose to, we chose to really focus on building a flexible BIM connected tool first versus just a tool for condition assessments or just a tool for facility audits. So they, they, were, they were surprisingly open to it. And we ended up just kind of taking it one step at a time. We talked with a, uh, uh, a lawyer um, about, about how, how we could make this happen. We ended up forming a separate organization and just kind of marching down that path to building out a final version that we could eventually, eventually launch. So what is Layer today? Question. So, uh, layer Layer is a flexible BIM connected platform that allows users to build hyper customized workflows for their building projects. So, we really focus on giving users a, a toolkit um, where they can create their own hyper customized workflows and processes for their companies or projects. So, it's kind of starting where we where we did condition assessment as an example of a workflow. Uh, that you can, you can create in layer. But if you think about that, like just, you know, if if any architects who have, who have done a condition assessment, you know, that um, based on the the company that is doing it, uh, the scope of the project, all kinds of different requirements dictate collecting totally different information. And so we realized really quickly, even on the capital that there has to be a level of flexibility to allow users to create kind of their, their, their own properties or fields that they're, that they're gathering. A good example, this is on the capital. We ended up, we ended up kind of hard coding in all of the uh, questions that we were answering in the condition assessment. And so every time the project manager would come to me and say, Hey, this question actually needs to read this way, or we need to change this to a true false question or all of those different types of things. I'd be making these changes. And, and quickly, I realized, you know, what, what, why, why don't we just, empower the user to be able to create these different fields and customize them rather than kind of pre-building them into our, our system. And so starting at that place with the condition assessment and like the necessity of flexibility in that, I think is what led us to today kind of focusing on building this this uh, flexible uh, BIM connected platform first.
0: So Layer is a web app, essentially, or maybe oversimplifying, that you can access from any platform, essentially.
1: Yeah, it's a uh, it's you can access it from any platform, and and we do have we do have a web application. You can also download native apps for um, iOS, Android, Mac, Windows, um, and then like you said, you can access it on the web. You also can access it. It's directly built into Revit, a uh, add-in as well. So we're 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 basically on every every platform. And that's one of the major tenants of of what we do. We think that that. Accessibility and transparency is, is what, what leads to better project collaboration.
0: As much as you can say, where do you think the future of Layer is headed? And in a larger sense, the future of architecture documentation?
1: Yeah, Good question. Uh, layer, layer really is where, where we're going with this. is We, we see a, a ton of value in uh, centralizing all of your project data in one location, that's incredibly hard to do now. But really, our aspirations are to be a common data environment for buildings. We want to be the source of all of that building data, whether it's in design, construction, or operations of a building. And so, obviously, like now, especially, there's a lot of talk of like digital twins and and, and things like that. But if you look at like if you look at there's a there's a recent survey by a, uh, facility, a facility management group that just looked into the hurdles or challenges in using BIM data in operations of a building. And a lot of those challenges focus around just the high barrier of entry uh, that it takes to actually use BIM software, whether it's Revit or ArchiCAD or um, whatever it is. In general, those are desktop-only products. In general, it's fairly limited in what information you can connect to objects in there you have to have generally a a lot of training um, or know-how about how to use the software. And it's software that's not really created for like referencing or um, summarizing or uh, visualizing information. And so that's where we see, that's where our aspirations really are is to be that connection point and to make it way easier to access your building data from from anywhere.
0: I want to go back and talk a little bit about when you completed your undergraduate degree in 2010, the industry was still dealing with the effects of the Great Recession. Where did you think your career in architecture would take you at that time?
1: You know, b- back uh, in, in 2010, uh, I remember starting starting uh, at BVH, and yeah, that was at a that was at a time where like jobs were pretty scarce. I ended up like during the summer, I think, uh, of that year commuting to BBH's Omaha office, which for me was about an hour and a half drive every day. And so I ended up doing that commute knowing that that wasn't really sustainable, but like I wanted to get the experience and the the practice and obviously I needed money to keep me going through college. And so I ended up working with with someone at BBH on, on, on on most of their projects. And he taught me a lot about what what the process of architecture um looks like he was a great great teacher i um, mean he taught me a lot about like just practically how how the profession works again it's things that you aren't exposed to in in academia and so um at that point i really wasn't i i wasn't i wasn't sold out on architecture and design i saw a lot of like i mean that summer i guess for me was was disillusioning i guess i would i would say um but uh once once the semester started back up i ended up i was fortunate enough they they transferred me to uh, the lincoln office which is in the same city obviously as as uh, the college i was attending and right away i got started on the haymarket arena project uh, that was that was a project that was just starting up so i think for for bvhn for me that project was what was was a lifesaver in a way because we we were we were scarce on work I believe just like just about everybody was, and that project for BBH at least I mean gave them gave them plenty of padding because it was it was a very large project but for me as well it kind of solidified where I wanted to go with my career, and that was really focusing on design technology and building solutions for for projects.
0: So in your case, you're no longer practicing as what we might define as a traditional architect. Mm-hmm. When you entered college, you had a vision of what the profession might be, or you had an idea of what it was. How has that reality been different from where you thought it was going to be?
1: You know, uh, so I, I think, and this is probably similar for, for a lot of architects, but I remember in, in school, especially, there's, there's very little compromise that you have to do on academic projects. And I think that was one of the more disillusioning things getting into the just just practice in general is the the level of compromise that has to happen specifically to like a design idea, right? Like to me, that was one of the more disillusioning things getting into getting into practice because I I thought like in in school especially that like you know I looked at looked at architecture firms uh, in the area or um, and then I you know as a, as opposed to you know famous architects um, around the world like Diller Scofidio and you know of those types and and I remember questioning like why why don't these local firms do this type of rigorous work you know versus like some of these others and it was just naive naive on my on my part but getting into practice, I then quickly understood the dynamics of a project and the way that design projects tend to get diluted um as 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 an idea moves down the line of design delivery construction that those types of things so It was it was very different and I think disillusioning to me when I got into got into practice.
0: (laughs) Well, hopefully not. Uh, It it certainly didn't discourage you from going on and getting your license and practicing for a short while, and and led to a career doing something really different.
1: Yeah, definitely. No, that's that was the that was the cool part. Is I think I found like especially in the area that we were in, a lot of the clients we were working with are that were were really pragmatic, right? Like mean focused on like, how can I get the, the, um, the most value for, for, my, for my money? And so on, on my side of things where I found a lot of interest is using parametric design tools and design technology tools to justify expenses to a project. So like I, I remember working on a, a small project called the Nature Conservancy and the main face of this building kind of faced Southwest. So you can imagine, but at the same time, the owner wanted expansive views outward toward the river and the, the prairie and stuff. So you can, you know, there's those types of negotiations that like you have to figure out how to, how to solve for all of these different priorities. And so we ended up using evolutionary problem solving and parametric modeling to, to one design a solution, but then two show the owner, why this was valuable and why it was, you know, we, we, Attributed value to these design decisions. And so for me, I found a lot of interest in that, like realizing that, okay, we have really pragmatic clients. How can I use these tools to justify these design decisions that we're making?
0: Well, wow, it's been quite a journey for you. So let's take a short break. And after, we'll explore a little bit more about your experience with the Mac and other Apple products right after this. How do you manage your firm? Are you using dated and clunky software? Are you frustrated using spreadsheets and never really getting a clear view of the status of your projects? Then I'm happy you're listening, because inside the Apple Studio sponsor, Monograph, can help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets, and you can do it all in real time. They have a feature called Money Gantt. And with this awesome tool, you can immediately see whether you are under or over budget on a project. Along with their new tool, Resource, which allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget, you can easily adjust your projects on a week to week basis. Monograph makes this easy. So help support inside the Apple Studio by checking out Monograph at monograph.com. Be proactive with Monograph. Welcome back. Zach, your architecture path has led you down a very different than a traditional architect. And thank you for sharing all of that. Now let's discuss how you started using a Mac and eventually other Apple products. How were you first exposed to the Mac? And what was the first Mac you used or owned?
1: So I, I, uh, I was always a Windows user. All through all, all my childhood, my dad you know, had, a, had a Windows uh, computer. I had one in, in high school. Um, and obviously like as I was in high school, as I was really interested in CAD and um, things like that. And most of those programs were only made for windows machines. And so I actually didn't really use a Mac early on in my life, but I've always been, I've always been drawn toward like high design and well-designed products and really just things. <laughs> and so that's something that's always, that's always really attracted me to Macs um, in general. And so I remember, um, Early on in my career at BBH, kind of wondering if uh, wondering what the hurdles were to using a Mac instead of a PC, and so obviously really quickly I realized that tools like Revit and other other tools like that weren't weren't made for Mac, and so that was obviously an immediate limitation. But I still convinced uh, BBH to to buy me a MacBook anyway, (laughs) and I ended up using tools like Parallels and Bootcamp to still run my production software, but also have the experience of a, of a Mac. Like I said, I think, I think the biggest thing for me, like, I mean, I, I I just, I, I am, I, I I like high design and like well-designed products. And so that's something that's always interested me about,
0: about Macs in general. So when you were doing a lot of the data analysis during your master's thesis, were you using a PC for that at the time?
1: I was, yep. I was using a I was using a PC. Yep. Yeah. And, and in general, most of the tools that I was
0: using was was on a was on a PC. So how in the world did you convince BBH to buy you a MacBook?
1: Well, I uh first of all, I I believe my my initial argument for it was that I needed to be able to deploy an iOS app for the prototype of layer (laughs) for the, for the capital. And so I had to, I had to, uh, and in in order to do that, just for some context, in order to deploy iOS apps and use Xcode to actually build iOS apps, you have to actually be on a Mac. You can't do it from a windows machine. So um, I think that's initially how I convinced them to to do it. But then I I obviously let them know how it would, how I was planning to set it up on parallels and others. And, found some articles online to help justify it a little bit too.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. So it was really the, create, the fact that you had to create an iOS app for what the prototype you were working on really kind of led that. But at the same time, you could argue, I can still do everything else that everyone does on a Windows PC through things like Parallels if, if there's an app that would not work, for instance, uh, natively on the Mac. Yep, exactly. When you were creating this app, you had to use a Mac to create the app iOS app side of that app. Are you continuing to use a Mac then in the creation of layer?
1: Yes. I've, I'm on my, I think I'm on my second Mac book. So, so far, and I continue to be a, a, a Mac uh, diehard now. I don't think I'm ever, I don't think I'm ever going back.
0: <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Uh, hopefully our audience appreciates that. <laughs> yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier, Layer has apps across all the platforms, Mac, iOS, Windows, and Android. Now, on the Windows side, there's a Revit add-in. What benefits does that have? And do you see a benefit in adding a similar type of add-in to a program, say, Archicad or other Mac BIM apps?
1: Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a good question. So, yeah, Layer uh, works within, connects to Revit really to do two things. One, extract Pertinent data from your Revit model, things like rooms, windows, doors, you know, especially equipment, all of that type of stuff, extract it from your model and bring it into the layer platform. Um, And then two, bring layer data back into the Revit environment. So it's really a two way uh, street for um, that information. So we started with Revit because it is the predominant tool, um, BIM tool in the United States. I think roughly, I think, I think it's like 80 percent, 70%. I I don't recall exactly what the statistic is, but it's a large majority of architects and engineers who are using BIM are working in, in Revit in the United States. And so that's really where we started. However, our objective really is to support all BIM platforms eventually. So we do support like IFC files, okay. uh, which you can get out of tools like ArchiCAD and others. But as far as actually like integrating into the software itself, we do have ArchieCad integrations planned and vector works is another one. So we, we do we do plan on supporting those eventually as well.
0: So BVH was all PC. Mm-hmm. Now with Layer, you're using a Mac. Does everyone else who's involved with Layer also using Macs?
1: So we have, let's see, everybody at Layer is using a Mac, including our we, we just hired someone who is starting with us in a couple of weeks and he just told us that um, he is <laughs> planning to use a Mac. So everyone at BVH uses a Mac except for one of our developers. So we we do give people the choice. They can choose whichever platform they want, mostly because most of the tools we're using are platform agnostic, but everyone everyone else is using a Mac except for one of our developers who's a diehard uh, Windows fan.
0: Okay. So at Layer, what sort of applications or services do you use to manage the operations there?
1: yeah so we, we use everything from like for like accounting and and things like that. We use QuickBooks online. We use tools like Stripe to collect payments and send invoices and all of those types of things. Really, all of the tools that we use are are web based tools for the most part. So a lot of the uh, like production tools that we're using are things like v s code and and others. We use Slack to communicate. With our with our team and with outside parties as well.
0: Having a small firm, how many people are at layer one, and how do you manage contacts, calendars, kind of some of the day to day sort of things that you have to be able to do? So uh, we have
1: we have six employees to, today. Um, we've got I think three job applications out there right now. So we're looking to looking to grow our team even more. In general, what we use as a as a team, especially with just like managing all of our contacts and relationships and things like that is HubSpot. HubSpot's kind of our central database for all of our customer information. So we use HubSpot to communicate, you know, to do all of our like marketing campaigns, things like that with sales communications, emails. Uh, We use it for servicing and and, uh, support tickets, things like that. So that's kind of our central hub of information.
0: What are some of the favorite things that you like about using a Mac and other Apple devices? So I remember
1: it was, it was probably, I don't know, maybe maybe six or seven years ago is when I got my first iPhone. Um, I'd always been an Android user before that. And I remember it being a interesting transition because there were things that I missed about Android. But really quickly, I realized that like buying into the Apple ecosystem of Apple devices was magical in a lot of ways (laughs) like just like that that's one thing that i i loved about like once i once i bought a mac and once i had an apple tv and uh an ipad and all of those things all of it just seamlessly works together and seamlessly syncs together and that that that's the thing that i think has impressed me most about just apple's ecosystem is they they do a really good job of integrating all of their all of their products together so And it just works like that's the, that's the great part about it is it just, it just works.
0: Right. So for those listening, what advice would you give if they're considering using a Mac in their office?
1: So when I, when I first bought a Mac and convinced BVH to buy me a Mac, I convinced I think three or four others to also buy a Mac or uh, get a Mac at BVH as well. And we kind of tested out how we could, how we could start to use max in, in practice. And right away, one of one of the big things that we realized was parallels in particular gave us a lot of issues when we were running Revit. And so ultimately we ended up switching to bootcamp, which obviously is less convenient because you actually have to restart your machine to go into bootcamp, but it was way more performative, especially when we were using tools like, like Revit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But one of the things that we started to do is look for, okay, so some of these some of the tools that we that we need that are running on Windows are there alternatives to them that we could use on on Mac and so revit is one that obviously we couldn't find an alt you know use an alternative and, or switch over our firm to a tool like Archicad or something else like that but we did find a lot of alternatives for other tools kind of in our toolkit one of them was Bluebeam, which used to support Macs but no longer is supporting uh, Mac environments and so we could use tools like Acrobat, which are way less efficient. This is prior to like layer. We've used tools like that. Um, The same with like our file servers, we ended up kind of suggesting and piloting, well, what if we started to store our project data on tools like Google drive or Dropbox um, rather than these, these local file servers that are always either going down or having trouble accessing via VPN or whatever else. And so it kind of started as kind of this small pilot of, And really, because we wanted to replace or utilize a a Mac, that we ended up using tools like Google Drive, and ultimately, now we BVH, the firm, has now transitioned completely off of physical servers and onto Google Drive as a primary project repository and storage. So, our interest in in evaluating how you could actually use a Mac in practice led to you know this fifty-plus person firm. moving over moving from physical servers altogether and moving to Google Drive other tools.
0: Wow. And Ed, I assume they found it cheaper to do that?
1: Yeah, yes. We we had several like, and I'm sure I'm sure there's plenty of people who have similar experiences, but we were working with like a managed IT service that that would, you know, we would pay them monthly and they would they would worry about all of our IT setup and all of that stuff. And we had several catastrophic events that led catastrophic is in like the server would just go out and we'd have to wait a week to access anything on that while they repaired it and wow those types of things that just like it caused so much headache in maintaining those that we were like you know what i think it's worth worth it to us to to move these to a, to a more reliable system so yeah that's what we we ended up doing and um, it worked out pretty well i think they're they're pretty happy with it
0: all because of a small team that wanted to use a Mac. All because of you. <laughs> yep, basically. <laughs> you that wanted to first use a Mac. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yep. Well, and that's the that's the interesting part too, is we, we kind of were going down this road of how do we make this all of our project information more accessible from anywhere? This is all pre-pandemic, but by the time the pandemic rolled around and we were ready, you know, they were moving into you know full remote work they were prepared. They didn't have to do any transition over because everyone had laptops. Everyone had access to all of the project files we were using, they were using tools like Slack and others to communicate. So um, I think we were really fortunate in that way that we didn't have to rush around trying to trying to figure out how we were going to patch this all together and make it accessible remotely.
0: Right. Well, Zach, I really appreciate you sharing your Mac and Apple experience. Um, and before we wrap up this section, I'd like you to share with the audience one app, utility, or service that you find most useful.
1: Well, good question. I I would say I would say Product Board is probably my favorite app or utility. And Product Board is a a roadmap um, planning tool. It's just a it's a beautiful tool that we use to to map out all of our features and the, kind of the the roadmap and overall direction of of layer. And so that's probably my favorite.
0: Is that an iOS app?
1: it's It's a web app so you can access it anywhere. yep
0: all right, great. well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. now let's get on to our final segment, the ten questions. So our first question is, what is your favorite word?
1: What is my favorite word? Um, yes <laughs> yes is my favorite word, and alternatively, no is my least favorite word
0: there that's the next question, so no is your least favorite word, okay. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally?
1: I'd say problems that, that demand uh, solutions, like big problems. Uh, that those, those really uh, get, me, get me going, like just thinking about the, the opportunity there, I think.
0: What turns you off?
1: Uh, I, I would say like the, the attitude of we've always done it this way. Well, we've always done it this way.
0: What sound or noise do you love? i would say the the <laughs>
1: the wind through the trees we we live on it we live on an acreage here uh, and there isn't much better than kind of walking around and listening to the the wind that wind blowing through the, the trees is walking around the property
0: <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate
1: nails on a chalkboard that's always been my my least favorite
0: what is your favorite curse word uh, i
1: use crap a
0: lot I think. So I would go with that. (laughs) What profession other than your own, would you like to attempt?
1: Oh, I think it'd be really interesting to be a pilot. That'd be cool. What profession would you not like to do? Anything that like, that doesn't take a whole lot of like critical thought or application, like mindless work. I'm, I would have a really hard time doing that.
0: I think. If heaven exists. What would you like to hear God say when you arrived at the pearly gates?
1: Uh, well done, good and faithful servant. That's for sure.
0: Zach, I'd like to thank you for joining me on this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. Let the listeners know where they can find you online.
1: Yeah, you can, uh, you can find me uh, at, at, our, at our website, um, layer.team. So it's layer.team. And uh, you can always email me too at uh, zach at layer.team.
0: Great. Well, thank you again for joining me, Zach. Thank you.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate the time.
0: I have been your host, Neil Pan, and thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. I'd like to thank my guest, Zach Safflin, for joining me and Monograph for their support. Learn more about Monograph at monograph.com. Find the show in your favorite podcast player by searching for Inside the Apple Studio and help support the show by leaving a 5-star rating and comment in Apple Podcasts. You can also support the show by telling a friend. This is the best way to help the show grow. Remember to follow the show by selecting the follow button in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. You can find me on Twitter at N-P-A-N-N or the show at Apple for ARC. That's Apple F-O-R-A-R-C-H. Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at appleforarchitects.com.